You're listening to the OMFIF podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and discussions on global finance, economics, and policy for people who love staying informed about the rapidly evolving landscape of the financial world. Join us as we break down complex topics, interview key thought leaders, and provide essential insights to keep you informed about the evolving world of finance. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. I'm Taylor Pierce, Senior Economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. Here with me today is Dr. Max Costelli, Head of Strategy Sovereign Institutions at UBS Asset Management, and Philip Saltman, also on the team at UBS. We'll be discussing the public investor outlook for 2024. Welcome, Max and Philip. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. The pleasure is ours. Despite another somewhat challenging year, 2023 ended relatively positively for global markets as inflation continued falling and the U.S. economy remained resilient. Max, how would you say public investors performed last year? I would say that unexpectedly, because the expectations were not very high at the beginning of 2023, actually, I think they've been doing quite well. And uh, let me elaborate on that, because 2023 was for sure a very, a sort of a roller coaster year. And the way when we discuss uh, with our clients about the year that just passed is that we really had the different phases. It started with the idea that we were in a sort of a Goldilocks type of environment. Then they moved in the first part of the year to a sort of a non-lending narrative when the expectation of interest rate actually went up pretty dramatically to more than 6%. Then in March, we had the U.S. mid-size banking crisis, which shocked the market and also led investors to think that central bank once again would come to the rescue with a decrease in interest rate. Actually, in the end, this did not happen. The, actual, the crisis in the end remained pretty confined. It didn't become systemic. And actually what happened is that as we move into the summer, we saw some more uh, sort of inflation pressures uh, building up so that the sort of a higher for longer narrative once again uh, took hold. And we actually had, uh, we arrived in October when interest rates, particularly long interest rate touch. Uh, went slightly above 5%, which is actually a level which was prevailing before the great financial crisis. Then what happened is that in the last quarter of 2023, we had a very good number on inflation. So there was more solid evidence that in the end, inflation was transitory in the sense that it is not really that we were not moving into a new regime characterized by a very high level of inflation, as was fear just a year before. And uh, also the central banks have become a little bit more dovish in their communication. The market was convinced that rate basically peaked and actually expectation for rate to fall in the first part of 2024 helped a lot the fixing of market. And also equity market were supported by the fact that interest rate were not rising more than expected. And as well, the fact, probably the most important one, that the U.S. economy did not fall into recession as was feared at the beginning of the year. What that meant for sovereign investors is that, according to our estimates, as you know, in our department, we model different type of portfolio. Basically, we had quite a recoup of the losses, quite a, almost complete recoup. It depends, of course, on the institution. They actually recouped many of the losses that they had in 2022. For instance, for reserve manager, 
which are uh, largely exposed to fixed income, government bonds and over fixed income assets. They had a return which oscillated between 5% and uh, up to 10% for the most diversified central banks. And for sovereign wealth funds, we had the return which oscillated again between 8-9% up to 14-15-16% for the best performing institution. Two remarks. So it was a good year, better than expected. Very important also after, as I said, the difficult 2022. But there are two important factors that I would like to mention. The first one is that both in 2022 and in 2023, the correlation between stock and bonds has been positive. Of course, in 2022, they were both negative in the sense they both experienced negative return. In 2023, they both experienced a positive return. This is a very important uh, element uh, when we think about the future, when we think about how things are going to develop, because as you know, this is a dramatic change compared to where we were before in the previous regime when the stock bond correlation was negative. The second point that I think is also very important looking ahead is that uh, thanks to rising interest rate, what we call in the jargon the liquidity premium, which is basically the premium that you get when you invest into illiquid alternative asset classes has fallen. And uh, this is something which uh, I think it is unusual. And of course, the big question for the future is whether this illiquidity premium will start to rise again once eventually interest rates will normalize. Yeah, thanks for laying that out. A lot going on, a lot happened last year. So definitely fair to characterize 2023 as a roller coaster. What would you say is the outlook for 2024 for global markets? And where do you see opportunities for public investors in this coming year? Yes. Uh, first of all, our baseline scenario is of a softish landing in the sense that we still believe that there is a probability of a recession in the U.S. simply because uh, probably we have not seen the full impact of the more stringent monetary condition, basically of the higher interest rates. But I believe it is... Uh, the probability of a recession is still uh, lower than the one of a softish landing. Actually, the data that we are getting in supported this view. Global growth has slowed, no doubt, particularly compared to 2022. Some European countries are uh, flirting with recession. Actually, the, uh, Germany, for instance, has been uh, in a, had a small recession based on the latest four-quarter data. France is stagnating, Italy is stagnating. But uh, let's say the resilience of the U.S., uh, and the European labor market, the still expanding service sector and rising real income points uh, to more resilience uh, as we move into 2024. Uh, actually, the IMF itself, in its latest World Economic Outlook, has slightly increased uh, the expected growth for 2024 for the global economy, largely reflecting the better than expected performance of the U.S., on the other end, if we look at the inflation, global inflation has definitely peaked and continued falling. We think it is likely to continue, but I think it's fair to say that there is still uncertainty where it will settle over the long term, so let's say over the next 18 to 24 months. There is definitely evidence of cooling in global demand, which I think will support the chance of interest rate cuts in 2024. But also on this front, so we have a little bit of uncertainty about the timing. As you know, the market expected the cuts as early as in the spring of this year, while the central banks are a little bit more cautious, 
probably because they don't want to repeat the mistake made in previous episodes, like for instance, during the 80s when they loosened too early and then they were forced to tighten again and more aggressively. Now, in this, in this type of environment, which is relatively benign, of course, uh, politics, and uh, we know that we have a big 2024 is a, a so-called election year with, of course, the big focus uh, on the, the US presidential election. We might see some volatility, but from a purely economic and financial perspective, I would say that we have uh, quite a benign uh, outlook uh, for the year 2024 and uh, for 2025. So if this is the picture from a macro and financial perspective, actually the reserve manager and the so-called stabilization fund, which are the one with a large exposure to fixed income asset, they can expect quite good return in 2024 and actually in 2025. As I mentioned, we carry out some estimates of future return for the typical central bank's portfolio and in, in this softish lending scenario, we expect uh, for the most conservative portfolio of central banks, which is largely cash and short duration government bonds, to enjoy a return over the two years of around uh, four, of more than 4%. And uh, for the most diversified the central bank's portfolio, which is the one including uh, an allocation to equity, we expect more than uh, 5%. Just to put things into perspective, particularly for the most conservative portfolio, the return of the last 15 years for central banks have been much lower. The problem, I think, is uh, that there are more challenges instead for uh, sovereign wealth funds. So, and the reason is that, of course, sovereign wealth funds face uh, two challenges. The first one is that equity uh, valuation are, uh, are not, uh, let's say, incredibly high or incredibly stretched. But definitely, they, of course, they are quite rich, also reflecting the positive performance of the equity market in 2023. And they also face the ongoing price adjustment in the alternative asset classes space, which is still unfolding. It's already pretty advanced in real estate. It's still going on in private equity and infrastructure. And there, of course, we have to see how what will be the final landing in order to have an idea about the impact on the portfolio of the long-term investor like sovereign wealth funds. So what does it mean in terms of opportunities? For central banks, for sure, there is definitely a very positive environment. They can generate a very good return by investing into cash, money market, and short-duration bonds. We are seeing, it as we speak, an increasing uh, focus on uh, extending duration, of course, reflecting the fact that interest rates are perceived to have peaked and they can eventually fall from the current level. And uh, also we are seeing some pockets of uh, opportunity, which I think are particularly interesting. For instance, an asset class that we are discussing a lot with central banks, with reserve managers, uh, in particular emerging market debt in our currency, which is an asset class which has generated very good return in 2023. And we believe it can continue generating a good return in 2024 and 2025, largely because the emerging market economies came out of the current interest rate hiking cycle in quite a good shape. And maybe we can discuss about this a little bit later. With regards to sovereign wealth funds, I think what we are seeing is that the fact that the public markets did very well in 2023, while alternative asset classes suffered a little bit more because of this price uh, repricing that I mentioned to you before, 
This is important because we have a rebalancing between liquid and illiquid parts of the portfolio. And uh, so they probably find themselves now with the level of uh, illiquidity, which is in line with their uh, asset allocation. What we are seeing there is we are seeing uh, really a continued focus on uh, thematic, on teams, technology, digitization, sustainability, the energy sector transition. We are definitely seeing a lot of sovereign wealth funds searching for this opportunity. This is actually never gone away, which also gives an idea why this type of investor are the truly long-term investor in uh, global capital markets. Yeah, thanks for laying that out. I'd like to come back now since you mentioned the um, emerging market debt. Compared to previous tightening cycles in advanced economies, and especially the Fed, emerging markets have been pretty resilient over the last two years, despite the rising interest rates in the US and the strong US dollar. Do you expect this trend to continue this year, or where would you anticipate volatility? That's a very good question, and I already alluded to the fact that we are uh, pretty positive about emerging markets, both for uh, fixed income and equity. And the, the reason is that when the U.S. interest rate hiking cycle started, when you couple that together with the strengths of the U.S. dollar, I mean, there was a wide consensus that emerging market would have been impacted pretty heavily. I mean, if, if you remember the taper tantrum time, it was just enough to mention interest rate hikes to have immediately panic among the investor and investor pulling out of emerging market asset in mass. Actually, this didn't happen this time around. Of course, we had some selected emerging markets facing problems, but I believe that these were largely reflecting bad policy choices. But overall, the macro performance of emerging market has been pretty good. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is why? And the reason I think that over the past 40 years, over the past few decades, many countries in Latin America and also in over emerging market experience a very high inflation with a lot of cyclicality and volatility and uh, economic and financial crisis. Central banks in these countries develop hands-on experience dealing with inflationary regime and as well with financial instability issue. Certain countries, as you know, adopted inflation targeting approach from developed market that basically recognizes the key role of the central banks and monetary policy in determining the inflation rate, the importance of independence of central banks. So controlling inflation has basically been one of the driver of the rapid growth and stability in output and employment in several emerging market economies. Actually, we should also not forget that to, to, to put inflation under control, many emerging market central banks started raising policy rate uh, as early as 2021, when instead the developed market economy, developed market central banks were still uh, uh, grappling with the, how to best respond to the rapid increase in price level. Uh, so I believe that this uh, action has played really a, a big part in elevating the credibility of emerging market sovereign, their credit rating, and uh, not only actually for the sovereign bonds, but also for the corporate uh, bond market in emerging market. Finally, we also had the, the inclusion of the so-called uh, GCC, Gulf Cooperation countries, in the index of the sovereign uh, emerging market sovereign bond, which has actually further boosted the, the credit profile of this asset class. As you know, these economies are doing very well, not only on the back of uh, high commodity price, but as well because there is a sort of domestic reform agenda which has attracted the attention of many, of many investors. 
So from that point of view, we, are, we think that emerging markets represent definitely an opportunity for investors going forward. And this is true from a macroeconomic point of view, but it's also true from a purely financial market point of view. Many emerging market equity have not yet benefited from the stop in the rise of interest rate that is visible in the performance of stock market in advanced economies. So valuations are pretty good. And I think there is an opportunity for investor who wants to enter this asset class with a long-term investment horizon to really enter at very good valuation. Finally, about sovereign bonds. I mentioned that we like very much emerging market debt in our currency, which basically means largely in dollar. Uh, in 2023, this asset class, investment grade sovereign emerging market sovereign bonds delivered a return uh, of around 7%, which is uh, nearly 2% more than the advanced economies government bonds. And I think that this outperformance will continue as we move into 2024 and 2025. And this is definitely an opportunity which investors should take. So probably the distinction between emerging market and advanced economies should be in some way thought through once again, because there are many emerging market economies, just think about the level of debt, public debt, which is prevailing in many of these economies, which is actually lower than in many advanced economies. And over the long term, they will face less problem in terms of debt sustainability compared, for instance, to countries like Italy, France, and even the US. Yeah, that's a good point about the dichotomy between emerging and advanced economies, and maybe emerging economies are looking more stable in, in the current period. You touched on a couple of specific markets, but I want to come to China. China appears to be struggling still from COVID-related lockdowns and that fallout, and foreign investors have seemed to turn more cautious recently toward investing in China. What do you think uh, will be the outlook for China's economy in 2024? Are you anticipating a strong recovery? Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm actually back from a week in China where we had our annual uh, UBS uh, conference, the Greater China Conference, which is an opportunity also for me to meet with, uh, first of all, uh, several institutional investors in China, but also officials from the government, from the regulators to discuss uh, of course, the, the outlook for the year. What is interesting is that in most of the meetings that I had with the, the Chinese, the officials were very, they, they were more keen to discuss about our views about China than uh, the global economic outlook. And this also gives an idea of how interested are the Chinese to also hear from uh, international institutions like UBS, their views about what's happening in China. Also, together with the fact that I was for the first time able to enter China without a visa, thanks to my Italian passport, this gives an idea of the growing openness of China after years of COVID-related lockdown. So let me maybe try to, in a few remarks, to put together what, what are my main takeaway from, the, from this conversation. First of all is that there is a clear awareness in China that the old growth model no longer works. So China has a lot of private saving which in the past was channeled into export and infrastructure, which has basically fueled this spectacular growth of the last few decades. These two factors of growth were supported by an unprecedented period of hyperglobalization. Basically, the Western world was completely open to Chinese export, and they needed to catch up in infrastructure as the country moved up from the low level of income. Now, both of these drivers are weakened. Hyperglobalization ended, 
We grow in protectionists, particularly against Chinese growth and friendly onshoring by Western corporates. Infrastructural spending has reached its limit. I mean, I drove from Macau to Hong Kong in a beautiful, recently built motorway, which has cost uh, several billion dollars. And uh, I have met one car for kilometer. One really wonders whether many of these infrastructure ultimately uh, were really needed and what is the impact that they have in terms of productivity and growth. Now, the question becomes what will be the drivers of growth in the future? And here there is a, also here there is awareness that, uh, and there is a clear conviction that there are two fundamental drivers, domestic consumption and the green transition. Domestic consumption, as you know, is being hampered by the highest save of among households. So the big question, which also will determine the outlook for 2024, is why Chinese consumers have not increased consumption after years of a harsh lockdown, exactly as their counterparts in the Western world have done once the COVID restrictions have been lifted. And here, I think there are both structural and cyclical factors at play. First of all, we know that in China, there is a problem of a weak welfare state, which basically forces Chinese households to save in order to fund the pension, health, education of their kids. This is a structural problem. So every time there is some additional income generated in China, in this case it was generated because they were in, because of the lockdown, they will basically accumulate it and not spend it. Very different, for instance, from what happened in the US. So from that point of view, this also means that the policy responses should be more about the rapid expansion of the welfare state. And then the second problem, of course, is the problem in the real estate sector which ended the rising youth unemployment, which has made the household more risk averse. So I think in order to answer your question about the outlook for 2024, I think it is very important to see what will happen in terms of the real estate sector, whether this uh, excess supply uh, will be reabsorbed pretty quickly or not, and also whether youth unemployment will fall so that to support the willingness of households in China to consume. I believe that we are going to see, probably we're going to be in the middle because I don't think the real estate sector story will end in 2024. For sure, the worst is behind us, but probably there is still more time to go before this excess supply is, is reabsorbed. And also from the youth unemployment perspective, I think it is very difficult to foresee a dramatic turnaround. Now, where are the, the bright spots? On the green transition, I mean, if you're driving Beijing and Shanghai nowadays, you're, it's impressive to see how many number of uh, electrical SUV you see around, also brands that we never heard in Europe and in the Western world. So we had the, the Greater China Conference, we had the, the stand of uh, BYD, Build Your Dream, one of the largest uh, car producers there. And there is no doubt that China is really investing a lot on that. And of course, they also expect to, and they're also investing a lot in the transition in the energy sector. This is definitely something which will drive growth. A lot of the investment is also coming from the private sector as well. And the question is, will be China be able to sell all these electrical cars around the world? Here I have my doubts because I can already see in the debate of the Western world, the potential protection is to stop China from taking advantage of his competitive advantage in the EV sector. The overbright spot is in the, in the sort of value chain uh, reconfiguration, particularly in the move into the tech sector. Here, according to what I hear from the official, 50% uh, of the investments of the private sector investment are in this sector. 
And this, and this is, of course, something that uh, I think also over the medium long term will have an impact on the growth potential of China. So this is, uh, these are the bright spots, but I think also this will take time to, in some way, to see uh, the impact really in terms of growth potential. So what will be the outlook for 2024? I believe there will be uh, an improvement as uh, the real estate uh, crisis gradually gets reabsorbed. I believe we're going to see more policy uh, response from the authorities. According to the discussion I had, the monetary policy response so far has been pretty weak, largely because of the fear of broadening too much the interest rate differential with the US and also to protect the RMB from devaluation pressure. But I think uh, we are going to see an improvement, but I would not expect a dramatic turnaround. Final point about Chinese assets. As you mentioned, foreign investors have been uh, pouring money out of China, particularly from the equity market. So when I talk to investors globally, there is a universally bearish view about Chinese assets, in particular about Chinese equity. This is something which is normally unusual. Normally, you have always the pessimist and the optimist. So this also means that uh, if there is a slight improvement, there will be a big impact in terms of the performance of the equity market. That's why we are seeing a selected number of institutional investors looking at China as an opportunity to really enter at the very attractive valuation and, key and stay there for the long term. Thanks, Max. So yeah, sounds like you're relatively cautiously optimistic on China this year. Philip, to turn to you now, I'd like to come to the super election year this year. Um, OMFIF also recently released our Q1 bulletin publication on the global election cycle this year, um, covering a range of elections as half the world's population heads to the polls this year. What do you see will be the ramifications of the election year in terms of disruptions to the global economy? Or where do you see other main macro risks in 2024? All right. So in general, as Max already mentioned, the, the big surprise last year and when but what many people got wrong is the resilience in particular of the US economy, of the strength of the of the consumer, the strength of the labor market. And right now the chance of a recession, at least during the next six months, really appears to be quite low. Now, when you look at the, the manufacturing cycle and the inventory cycle, the CapEx cycle, housing cycle, you really would not think that we had one of the fastest uh, hiking cycles ever. Some of that also goes for the wealth effect, uh, which never really had much of a dampening effect on growth or financial conditions, which are now really quite loose um, at the top of the hiking cycle. So you really wonder what, what role the Fed or other central banks really played in bringing down inflation and what transition mechanism they think they really influenced. Um, and that in itself is, is maybe a bit scary. And it reminds me of an audience question that we asked at our last reserve management seminar to over 60 central bankers in the room, uh, which was... Do monetary authorities really fully understand the nature of the current inflation outburst? And 76% said no. So the first thing that we need is maybe a bit of humility and we should not pretend that we fully understand all of the mechanics that are going on right now. But unfortunately, we currently have quite some big tectonic plates that are on the move on the, in the global economy. Now, there are those who say that, that it would be absurd to think that, that such a credit-driven economy like the US would be immune to the effects of such a dramatic increase in rates. So one of the key questions and therefore the, the key risk for 24 will be uh, the question, are we simply observing delayed effects of a monetary policy and then suddenly the labor market and ultimately the economy come down harder than anticipated? On the other side, and also not great, what if we really start a new upswing in the, in the business cycle from here? 
but then prices and wage growth uh, move up much faster than expected from a higher plateau in inflation. Now, the, the mechanics in the fixed income market will, will play a crucial role here. We have to see how companies will handle the pent-up refinancing needs and at what rates they will be uh, will be able to refinance this year, especially because at the same time, the US government will also have to take on a lot of debt and, and structural bias that were around in the past are now more and more missing. But because you ask about the, the role of the, the election year specifically, um, the, the one thing that the Janet Yellen will be focused on this year probably will be to uh, prevent uh, Trump from winning. And Powell might be quite aligned with that goal. Um, so the, the somewhat paradox impact from the risk that is coming from the US election could be that that it is a short-term stimulative uh, because there's a big temptation to from the fiscal and monetary side to run the economy a bit hotter than they should, uh, which however, of course, has quite some, some long-term risks. But as we remember, Trump always explicitly highlighted the economy and the stock market in particular as his key metric. So it is possible that, that a lot of levers will be pulled over the next month to avoid a recession and maybe also a bigger decline in the stock market uh, before the elections. And in particular, Yale and, and her team, uh, they seem to be quite, quite skilled in managing the sentiment in the, in the fixed income market uh, with their quarterly announcement about debt issuance. And they might also run, tactically run down the, the Treasury General account again, uh, which is now nicely filled up with 800 billions, especially in case the market struggles with the amount of debt that has to be issued. So US elections will be a key factor this year and one should not underestimate the role that they, that they might have for the, for the business cycle in the short term, but therefore also on the flip side um, for the longer term inflation outlook. Because adding much stimulus and debt uh, would of course only add to the, the, the longer term challenges for central banks. And it would probably even more shift the focus of the market to the question at what level will inflation really settle in the long run? Because in an ideal world, central banks now really have to wring inflation completely out of the system before the next upswing starts. And that means they really have to destroy the idea that we now live in a world where prices go up and up and that wages should follow. And if they don't do that, there's the risk that we will start the next business cycle from a higher level. And then we might really follow the, the 1970s playbook where we had three waves of inflation, each starting at a higher level than, than the one before. And the key risk that is lurking here is, of course, damage to the um, to the long-term inflation fighting credibility of central banks. Because if that is lost, then the, the term premium would really rise and the, the bond vigilantes would, would really come back. And because of that, we also have to be closely watching for any stress events that might require sudden measures by the Fed or other central banks, because they might have bigger consequences than in the years before. The, the market is now very sensitive when it comes to inflation, and it might not be so easy as, as, as in the past to solve the next crisis simply by dropping money on it. And in any future crisis, it will be more difficult to handle if it has an inflationary component to it. Uh, so, if, for example, when energy prices go up massively. And that is why geopolitics have to be watched closely this year. It is an area that can be ignored most of the time, but sometimes it comes back in a dramatic way and then all the, it is all that matters for some time. But the biggest risk really might be if during the next accident or crisis, the bond market suddenly gets spooked by the, the massive stimulus that they expect from, from monetary and fiscal side. And then you suddenly see a bond sell-off at a time where you would expect a fly to safety move into, into government bonds. That, that would really mean that we have a major problem and it could trigger the next chapter in the, in the saga of, of unconventional policy measures. So now, Maybe just finally, uh, 
because there, there's probably no podcast that that does not mention AI right now. Uh, so when you look at at the risk at that from the risk side, uh, then 2024 could also very well be the year where we will see the decision if you're currently following. The, the, the boom bust pattern of the, of the dot com crisis, or if there's really now a new productivity miracle right around the corner, which is then kind of the, the missing link that could really make the soft landing work and transition into a, into a low inflation growth phase and, and also validate the, the lofty valuation in, in tech stocks that Max mentioned with a new capex cycle and then the large scale adoption that is spreading fast. But um, while nobody doubts that the impact of AI will be massive, um, the, the key question will be if these changes happen over the next two years or the next 20 years, and if we will have several bigger reality checks in between or not. And um, yeah, we might be probably get closer to that answer in 24, and it will definitely uh, be a very interesting year. Thanks, Philip, for adding in the bit about AI. That's definitely an important question this year. Sounds like elections used to introduce more uncertainties and into the economic outlook in emerging markets. And we didn't used to worry so much about debt sustainability in advanced economies. But from what you, Max and Philip, have said, it seems like maybe we need to reconsider our thinking on this as we think about the public investor outlook this year. So thank you both very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are available. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the OMFIF podcast. If you found today's conversation engaging, make sure to stay tuned for additional thought-provoking discussions on worldwide finance, economics, and policy by subscribing to our channel. Stay connected of the latest developments by following us on our LinkedIn page, OMFIF Economic and Monetary Policy Institute.